Hey, Dr. Christensen here with you. I wanted to talk about eosinophilic esophagitis. Now, this is something that is getting diagnosed much more widely, and some people really do have it, and it is a big source of many symptoms. But let's go deep into seeing whether or not this could be a relevant thing for you, what it would look like, and what someone would do about it if they had it. So, key symptoms, there's a couple of real classic ones. The big one is difficulty in swallowing. And in this case, there's some swelling, there's some edema, secondary to inflammation in the esophagus. That's why it's hard to swallow, there's not as much room. People that have this often find themselves compensating by eating slowly. They may also reduce their intake of solid foods as a means to lessen the irritation on the esophagus. In many cases, they can also avoid social eating. They're, they know that eating's tricky and they're less apt to do that amongst others. Chest pain, heartburn can be common ones too. Then we'll see some other symptoms that can show up, like vomiting, uh, stomach pain, sensation of a lump in the throat, or just this ongoing random cough. There's not really much mucus coming up, but the person keeps on coughing. So eosinophilic, the eosinophils, they're a type of white blood cells that are involved with allergic responses. They also manage some infections, more so infections against larger multicellular organisms, uh, read-in parasites. So extreme activation of eosinophils can equate to parasitic infections, but more mild to moderate elevations points to more of an allergic response. And esophagitis, you know the esophagus, we've got two tubes, <laughs> poor engineering. We swallow and breathe from the same area with two tubes and a quick switchboard. And then itis is just Latin for fire or inflammation. So altogether, you've got inflammation in the esophagus, and there's a whole lot of eosinophils that are embedded in all of it. So we think there's some allergic interaction. So how common is this? Well, big picture, it's not common. This is a rather rare condition. It does seem to affect people throughout the lifespan without a lot of difference from kids to adults to the elderly. Um, here's a fun thing. <laughs> Women have gotten the short end of the stick for so many diseases. They get so much more autoimmune disease than men. This is a case where guys get a little bit more than women. So if we could balance the playing field a little bit, this could be an example of that. Uh, prevalence is thought to be somewhere between 10 and 57 cases per every 100,000 people. It may be on the rise. However, many gastroenterologists have talked about the risk of this being overdiagnosed. So there's that. So again, this is eosinophils, and they're normally mediating allergic responses. So somehow or other, reactions, allergy reactions to foods seem to be behind a lot of this. In some rare cases, pollens can also be triggers, meaning you could breathe in ragweed, and that could start a reaction that could go down the esophagus. We think that's less than 1%. Now, with the immune system, allergies and other immune stressors, they go together. So if you're sick, if you're fighting a bug in some way, you're much more apt to have a bad allergic response to anything else. So we can see that herpes virus, candida, they can start a process that can then make the allergic response more severe. We also see that medications, um, tetracycline is well known, can instigate this process. And then radiation therapy, you know, most common thing is radiation for lung cancer because it's over the same area that the esophagus is. Now, here's some, some good news about eosinophilic esophagitis. There's, there's good data saying that the disease does not equate to 
a shorter lifespan, a higher cancer risk, or other problems like that. Many other esophageal conditions like reflux disease do equate to more esophageal cancer, but eosinophilic esophagitis thankfully does not. Many people that have this condition also have airborne allergies or seasonal, asthma, seasonal asthmatic symptoms. And in general, they can see some overlap between the gastrointestinal symptoms and the airborne allergies. So we also see a high rate of food allergies or eczema with that. So how do we diagnose it? Well, the closest look-alike is reflux disease, also called GERD or gastroesophageal reflux disease. You know, plain old Hartford was the old name for it. That's where acid scooches out of the stomach and burns the esophagus. These things look a lot alike. And in many cases, doctors will do a simple clinical trial. They'll do an aggressive dose of an antacid. And if you get better, it's more so reflux. If you didn't, then it could be something else which would include eosinophilic esophagitis. That's not to say that heavy-duty antacids are a good treatment for reflux short-term or long-term, but in many cases that's a quick way of just seeing how symptoms respond. To really diagnose, first one does have to rule out reflux disease. One does also have to do a upper endoscopy and see if there are eosinophils. Take a tiny sample of the esophagus, see if there is a very high rate of eosinophils present. And having said all that, this stuff is still not perfect because in many cases, inflammation from other causes still can have eosinophils present. So there is a certain amount of clinical acumen and judgment involved on the diagnosis. And there's been argument that this diagnosis has been tossed around without having passed through many of those steps. So we think about treatment. And the first thing for treatment is Question the diagnosis. You know, did your diagnosis involve those steps that I, that I mentioned? You know, did you really rule out reflux disease? Did they rule out other signs of esophageal irritation? Is this just more so IBS? I see many people now that have symptoms of IBS, gas, bloating, discomfort, heartburn, irregularity, and then they may have a food allergy test. And from that, they're told they have eosinophilic esophagitis. That's not accurate. You know, that can be IBS without eosinophilic esophagitis. The other concern is that it could be inflammatory esophagitis, it could be reflux, or it could be inflammatory bowel diseases from many other causes. So the pitfall about assuming it's this when it's, when it's not is that you won't be on the best treatment. And also you could miss a condition that could harm your health from being undiagnosed. So what are the main treatments that are done conventionally? Well, for symptomatic treatment, the mainstay is topical steroids. And that's actually asthma medications, but swallowed and not inhaled. Conventional medicine does also use some mast cell stabilizers. And these decrease the release of histamine from the eosinophils. Uh, chromalin, Montelukast are the main examples of that. They will also look at esophageal dilation, which is just what it sounds like, stretching out the esophagus. Now, even in the conventional world, they see the value of understanding and addressing dietary allergies with eosinophilic esophagitis. They've done some studies looking at how to best test for these reactive foods and how well does that control symptoms. So they've also done diets in which you cut out many commonly reactive foods 
adding them back in one at a time. And then the last thing done for dietary approaches in the conventional world is what's called the elemental diet. And that's, that's a diet that's comprised of synthetic carbohydrates, amino acids, fats, micronutrients. So it's no foods, but it's all the main building blocks the body would need. And no food, no food elements or more, no proteins that would identify your immune system that it's from food to trigger the responses. So the elemental diets, you know, to quickly dismiss them, they're not cost effective, they're not pleasant, they don't taste good, they're not long-term solutions. So the, with the foods, eliminating a lot of foods at once with the elimination diet turns out to have a very high rate of false positives and a small number of people actually get effective outcomes. The elemental diets, they can work about 91% of the time, but the difficulty I mentioned is just the cost and the taste. So when they do test for food reactions, the most common tests are basing the reactions off of skin reactions. And skin tests are decent for gauging airborne allergies, but it turns out they're not very accurate for dietary allergies. So if someone does a dietary approach based upon skin tests, they'll get results about 45% of the time. So the other approach is more so the empiric, meaning cut out these foods that seem to affect you badly. About 72% of the time, that approach works. The top foods that seem to be offenders include dairy, soy, peanuts, tree nuts, eggs, wheat, and seafood. And recommendations show that people get the best clarity by eliminating really just one or maybe two of those food groups at a time and then monitoring symptoms over a three-week cycle. So that's the most effective conventional approach. Now, there's good data saying that chromalin, chromalin sodium, is a safe and effective mast cell stabilizer. That's a synthetic compound, but it's actually a lot like a naturally occurring substance called quercetin. And chromalin is ridiculously safe. Now, chromalin is also cost prohibitive. It comes in these sterile ampules. You would do one before meals. It's often not covered through insurance, and a full dose could be $1,000 or more per month. So here's some, here's some non-clinically proven thinking outside the box. I don't really like the idea of connecting dots, but this is an example in which I think it can be done safely when there are really no other better documented approaches. So if someone does have this, first please do sort out your reactive foods. And one approach is cutting out things from those common categories. The other one is more accurate tests that involve IgG markers, not just the IgE on the skin. IgG tests are good, but they're horribly different in terms of how accurate they are from laboratory to laboratory. And by accurate, I just mean how reproducible that data is. So if you had the same blood test done twice, like on the same day, you should get the same results. But in most of these tests, people do not. And the conventional world has often dismissed IgG testing for that reason. I've had the capacity to, to screen about three dozen different laboratories and just you know, have my blood drawn twice and put some random name on half of the sample and send them both in. And I found a couple labs that are accurate that we do use at Integrative Health. So one good approach is more thorough testing to see what could be reactive foods and working around those. So now back to the whole chromalin discussion. There's, I mentioned how chromalin and quercetin are similar molecules, and they're both very safe. Quercetin is non-prescription. It's very cost-effective, and there's no big drawbacks to it. 
The negative about quercetin is that it's not absorbed well orally. So if you take a quercetin pill, you're not likely to get that pill in your bloodstream and circulating throughout your body. However, in the case of eosinophilic esophagitis, that doesn't matter. We don't need it circulating throughout your body. We just need it to contact the esophagus. So a capsule may not work in that regard, but an opened capsule or a powdered form of quercetin would contact the esophagus quite effectively. Now, one little pitfall with that is you can often find quercetin in combination products that may include things like bromelain or even hydrochloric acid. So those ingredients would be not good for an inflamed esophagus, but plain quercetin may be a good thing. And there actually is a human trial going on right now for inflammatory esophageal damage, and we're waiting to see results from that. There's also been some similar speculative data about chrysin, which is also a bioflavonoid, kind of like quercetin. We see some of that in bee products like honey or propolis, and also a plant called passifloria or passionflower. And then we think about foods that have mast cell stabilizing properties. So a couple of big hitters, probably number one on the list would be buckwheat. The amount of mast cell stabilizing rutin that it has puts it completely in a class by itself. Um, blackberries, also really good things. Bell peppers, not green, but all the ripened bell peppers, the reds, the yellows, oranges. And then citrus, especially that lining right within the citrus. So apart from these, there's a lot of other general things that are good for you overall that also radically improve eosinophilic esophagitis. And first on that list is just plain old weight loss. You know, it seems that there's so many ways that that extra five or 10 pounds just creates a lot of extra inflammation floating around in your body. So weight loss itself is extremely helpful for this. And there may also be some mechanical reasons by which there's less pressure around the organs, but very big thing. Avoiding tobacco products of all type, sitting upright after meals. So if you eat and then lay down, there's more acid that creeps up and irritates the esophagus not wearing tight clothes, avoiding aspirin, non-steroidal anti-inflammatories, and these things can all be positive steps. So prognosis, most that have this do have symptoms that come and go, but when it is well treated, a good percent can have the reactive foods become non-reactive. I'm really excited about uh, sublingual immunotherapy, and we anticipate that to be available in the short-term future, which could further help reverse some long-standing food allergies. So overall, we don't see signs of this shortening the lifespan, raising the risks of cancers, or affecting problems further down in the intestinal tract. So it's treatable, it's mostly related to allergies. However, it's also really overdiagnosed. So first step is question the diagnosis, sort out the real triggers, the real food triggers, and then look at some natural ways to soothe any irritation like quercetin or buckwheat. So that's it. Dr. C here. Take great care of yourself and we'll see you again real soon. Bye-bye.